Magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about impeachment, of course. We'll also talk about Afghanistan, which held elections on Saturday. Trump had declared a couple of weeks ago that negotiations with the Taliban were dead. This was after he had promised to end the American war there. How will that war end? Andrew Basevich has been thinking about that. We'll speak with him later in the show. Also, thousands of Muslim women left their homes in the West to travel to Syria to join ISIS, the Islamic State, especially after it declared a caliphate in 2013. Many of them were educated and successful. So why did they do it? Azadat Moaveni wanted to find out. We'll speak with her about what she learned later in the show. But first... The big question about impeachment is not the House. There now seems to probably be enough votes there to pass at least one article of impeachment. The question is about Republicans, especially in the Senate. Will some abandon Trump? Will it be more than Mitt Romney? For comment, we turn to Joan Walsh. She's, of course, national affairs correspondent for The Nation and a political analyst for CNN. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Happy to be with you. Well, Maybe it's too early to be counting heads in the Senate, but bear with me for a minute here. Of course, it takes two-thirds of the Senate, 67 votes, to remove a president from office. That means 20 Republican votes are needed in addition to all the Democrats and independents. And, of course, that seems impossible. But maybe some Republicans will respond to evidence about Trump's crimes and misdemeanors. Former Republican Senator Jeff Flake said he thinks at least 35 Republican senators would vote to remove Trump from office if, this is a big if, they could vote in private. Of course, the vote won't be in private, so... You know, I guess I have been cautioned by various people not to try to handicap this right away. I mean, I wrote a piece last week saying that the Republicans would go down with Trump I stand by it. And yet at the same time, we have just seen the most horrific allegations just in the last 24 hours. So while on the one hand, you know, in your intro, you said Mitt Rom- only, maybe, maybe only Mitt Romney uh, would vote to impeach. Well, I don't think we can even count on Mitt Romney. On the other hand, self-interest gets involved here. I don't, I don't really want to say that, uh, you know, there's a whole lot of integrity there, but self-interest gets involved. And we've seen a swing in the public opinion polls uh, in the last uh, week or so. Uh, Chuck Grassley has come out and said the whistleblower should be protected. Now, these are this is a very low bar. A whistleblower should be protected. Hello. But <laughs> there are other people joining Trump in trashing the whistleblower and calling him a spy and, you know, calling for his prosecution, et cetera, et cetera. So there are a few signs of movement. And I I, I think it's important not to only judge impeachment in terms of whether and how many Republicans go along. It would be lovely to remove him. But I think finally, Democrats have realized, and I've thought this for a while, that it's not something that you do only if you can get Republican votes. It's something that you do if you if it's if the evidence brings you there. So I think it's important not to not to handicap this too early. If the House votes to impeach him, it will certainly matter. 
How many Republicans in Congress are supporting Trump's suggestion on Monday that Adam Schiff, chair of the House Judiciary Committee, be charged with treason? How many are supporting Trump's statement that his removal from office would lead to a civil war? You know, Republican senators, uh, at least, and very few in the House, to be honest, they're not following him to crazy town. I'm not saying they're going to turn against him, but, you know, they really are stopping short crazy town so far. In The Nation, you pointed out that the Republicans have their own special language for describing Trump's crimes. People have called it inappropriate. People have called it worrisome. I mean, inappropriate is, you know, when your child fails to say thank you. It's beyond inappropriate. And, you know, Ben Sass calls it troubling. I don't know where they get these euphemisms for, for mild expressions of concern. Today, Republicans talk about what Trump is doing is troubling and inappropriate. Just want to remind uh, our listeners that Lindsay, the famous Lindsey Graham, who you've talked about during the campaign, called uh, Donald Trump, quote, a race-baiting, xenophobic, religious bigot, close quote. He also called him a kook crazy and said he was a man unfit for office. Ted Cruz called Trump a, quote, pathological liar who was, quote, utterly immoral. And Mick Mulvaney, the former Republican Congress, who is now Trump's chief of staff, called Trump a, quote, terrible human being who has made, quote, disgusting and indefensible comments about women. Mick Mulvaney, hasn't his name come up in the context of the whistleblower report? He apparently is the person who acted on, we believe, the president's direction and insisted on withholding the military aid to Ukraine. So the quid or the quo, I'm not sure which <laughs> is which, uh, in, this, in this whole matter. So yes, he acted on one of the president's historically most corrupt demands after after saying that. I mean, I don't know how these people live with themselves. I I can't and I don't know how uh, you know, tax cuts and uh right-wing judges are enough, but I guess, I guess they are. These are also people who profess to be Christians. I mean, uh I don't believe in hell, but they're supposed to. Uh, you know, I don't know how they sleep. I don't know how they sleep. You said earlier that Republicans in Congress won't abandon Trump for moral reasons for the right reasons, but they might do it for political reasons if their own re-elections were in danger. Uh, Now it's time for another episode of Alternate Scenario Theater. How about this one? Mitch McConnell concludes he could lose his majority in the Senate if Trump remains at the head of the ticket next year. The Democrats could win the three Senate seats they need to take control of the Senate. Maybe they could win Maine, Arizona and Colorado, maybe even Kentucky. And Mitch McConnell concludes that if Trump were to step down like Nixon and Pence became president and then Pence ran as the incumbent, Republicans would do better. But you ask, why would Trump step down? He'd do it in exchange like Nixon for a pardon for him and his family. How do you like this episode of Alternative Scenario Theater? I think it's believable. I mean, I, you know, Mitch, Mitch McConnell is a survivor who can do the math. I don't like him, but those two things are fair to say about him. So if, if he can, and, you know, they do a lot of polling, if he gets polling data, especially about his own race, but also 
Collins in Maine and Corey Gardner in, in Colorado and Martha McSally in Arizona for sure are vulnerable. If he really gets polling that he could lose his majority, it is possible that he walks over and, and, and tells the president that and that Mike Pence offers a pardon. I'm not sure it gets them out of uh, a jam because, you know, Mike Pence has the charisma of a possum. So the <laughs> idea that Mike Pence will somehow save them, will cruise to victory, will carry a lot of folks on his uh, little coattails. I don't I don't see that scenario. So you have to factor that in too. that that, you know, Mitch McConnell knows that Pence is not necessarily a superhero, but 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 he might be better than Trump. But, you know, if that happens, he can still be prosecuted by the state of New York. And I, I see our attorney general, Letitia James, as being a person who, who would go for that. This whole scenario may seem unlikely to us, but I note that Trump has been thinking about Pence Please remind us what Trump said about Pence in that otherwise pretty incoherent press conference he gave uh, last week. He said something like, hey, don't forget, look at some of VP Pence's conversations, too. He's had conversations uh, re- regarding Ukraine and with, and with Ukrainian officials. So, so right. I mean, he, if there's dirt on Mike Pence, and I'm sure there is, you know, given the way, the adoring way he looks at Trump, I'm sure he does anything he asks him to do. If there's dirt on, on Pence, Trump has it. So it could get very dirty. I mean, these are dirty people who are willing to go to unbelievable depths to save themselves. And so, I, I mean, I really look forward to the circular firing squad. I, I really do. If that circular firing squad acts quickly enough, who becomes president if we don't have either Trump or Pence? Uh, say hello to President Pelosi. So from your mouth to God's ear, uh, that that would be wonderful. I'm sure Hillary Clinton would, would really enjoy that one. We get our first female president after all. Last question. Let's assume the Republicans stick with Trump to the bitter end. They prevent a conviction in the Senate and Trump runs as their leader in November 2020. What are the chances this could be one of those Elections where the incumbent party suffers a massive defeat across the board, not just for the White House, but in both houses of Congress and farther down the ticket, what we call a watershed election. I think it's possible. I mean, I really think given how much, again, I don't want to get uh, us to get ahead of ourselves, but given how much public opinion has changed in the last week, even among Republicans, quarter of Republicans believe there should at least be an impeachment inquiry, not that they necessarily think he should be gone. But but the, the changes with Republicans and independents have been amazing. So if things continue to accelerate, if we continue to have more revelations, which I think we will, you know, I think an old journalism adage is scoops beget scoops. And, and you know, the more people who are being burned and hung out to dry, and, you know, some of the decent career people who, who are still there, whether in justice or in the State Department, I believe we will see more revelations. And so if they protect him, uh, I think we could see a watershed election. But that's, again, I think people have to just work incredibly hard. Uh, and you know how I feel about these state house races. One of my big concerns is that all the attention to the 2020 presidential election is is starving some of these state house races for cash. So that's my pitch to people. Don't forget the state houses; they really matter. Joan Walsh, reader at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. Always great to have you on the show. Thank you, John. 
it's time to talk about the unhappy subject of Afghanistan. Trump, you may recall, canceled peace talks with the Taliban a couple of weeks ago. He had invited the Taliban to Camp David on the anniversary of 9-11 after promising in the 2016 campaign to end America's war there. Now he says those peace talks are, quote, dead, and now the war is continuing, and elections for a new president were held on Saturday. We're told there were at least 68 attacks on election targets and that at least 40 people were killed defending the polls. We won't know the results of the vote count for weeks, and a runoff seems likely. Meanwhile, the United States continues to spend billions of dollars there, mostly for the government security forces. But sooner or later, the United States will pull its troops out of Afghanistan. If Trump doesn't do it, his successor will. What will happen in Afghanistan then? We spoke with Andrew Basevich about it shortly after Trump canceled the peace talks. Basevich is a retired colonel and Vietnam War veteran, also professor emeritus of international relations and history at Boston University. And now he's president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He's a regular contributor to The Nation and the L.A. Times, the author of many books. His new one, The Age of Illusions, How America Squandered Its Cold War Victory, will be published in January. Andrew Basevich, welcome back. Oh, thanks very much for having me on. Well, you think the way we ended our war in Southeast Asia suggests how we will end our war in Afghanistan what do you remember about the end of the Vietnam War? Sometime around uh, the latter part of 1968, after the Tet Offensive, I think it became obvious to all, obvious to the military, I was then a serving officer, obvious to the political establishment, obvious to the country at large, that uh, it was unwinnable, that we were never going to persuade uh, North Vietnam to give up its efforts to unify the country. And therefore, after the election of Richard Nixon uh, as president, he took office in 1969, he set out to extricate us from this unwinnable war, promising to deliver peace with honor. That was a lie. What he really intended to do was to try to get us out without having to admit failure. Uh, and depending on how you look at it, I guess the peace agreement of 1973, January 1973, enabled us to do that. We left, we forgot Vietnam, and we left the fate of Vietnam to be decided by the, the Vietnamese. The Afghan National Army, I read, loses nearly 3% of its force every month to casualties, uh, desertions, failure to re-enlist. 3% a month, that's... I guess 36% over 12 months, that means they have to replace over a third of their army every year. How sustainable is that? How likely is that? It's not. And again, I don't want to overdo the Vietnam comparisons because you, you know, that's, that's, it can't be overdone. But but having just said that, this was part of our problem with Arvin. It wasn't that we didn't, we we provided Arvin with lots of weapons, lots of ammunition, fighter planes, uh, helicopters. There were any number of American advisors were trying to uh, train Arvin, uh, you know, impart the skills needed to be good soldiers. But in these kind of wars, you can impart skills, but you can't necessarily impart the will to fight. 
my sense is that in Afghanistan, the, the principal problem of the Afghan security forces is that they get recruited and they go through basic training and then they somehow disappear. You know, these people, they may not be willing, they're not as willing to die for their country as we would want them to be, uh, and, and perhaps with good reason. Uh, not, there's no particular reason that I can see uh, that one would have confidence in the Afghan government that, of course, we installed uh, back at the end of 2001 that, that may, they may, soldiers may not necessarily see as their government. That describes the fix. And again, you know, we're doing this for 18 years. How many more years should we try? Uh, I, I think uh, I, I, am, I am the last person uh, to say that he's a supporter of Donald Trump. I'm not. But I think the president is right that in this case, you have to recognize reality, and at some point you cut your losses. I'm not sure how many more American lives uh, this war is worth. And I say that recognizing that when we leave and when it, then it is left to the Afghan people to decide their, their future, it may not turn out to be a pretty uh, consequence. So what's the scenario here for, for, for the Americans? Assuming Trump changes his mind about negotiating with the Taliban, he often does change his mind, so assuming he restarts these negotiations in, in Qatar, and if this follows something like the Vietnam model, as you've suggested it probably will, how will the American war in Afghanistan end? Will Trump be talking about, in private, a decent interval? Will his successor actually claim mission accomplished? If this deal, which you know, the Trump has now declared is dead, I think. Yes. I suspect it's not dead. Remember, he has a strong incentive to wrap this war up. He has not had any significant foreign policy successes that I can see. He's running for re-election. It would be very much to his benefit if he could say, hey, look, I promised to win the war in Afghanistan. I did. Mission accomplished. Uh, vote for me. And so I'm guessing that he's going to want to revive this process. And my further guess, and it's only a guess, would be that the, the ultimate peace deal will closely resemble the one that fell apart just a week or so ago, that uh, we'll have a phased pullout. Basically, the Afghan government will be handed a, a take-it-or-leave-it note, and the Taliban will bide its time until the Americans are gone, and then actions will occur to determine what's going to be the future of Afghanistan. Well, one of the biggest issues in Afghanistan for many Americans is really a big difference with Vietnam in 1973 to 75, and that's what will happen to women and women's education if the Taliban return to power. Last time the Taliban ruled Afghanistan, girls were not allowed to go to school, women were not allowed to work outside the home. The deal the Trump people seem to have been making with the Taliban did not include anything about women's rights. They said... They were going to leave that to negotiations between the Afghan government and the Taliban. Right. What do you think will happen to girls' education in Afghanistan after the United States pulls out? You know, honestly, I wouldn't even speculate. Uh, and, and I'm not, I don't mean to be punting here, but you, uh, your, uh, your description of the fate of Afghan women and, and girls when the Taliban was last in power is certainly accurate. Okay, we've now... 20 years later, uh, and it is at least possible to speculate, and I'm only speculating, right. uh, that 
the Taliban leaders have learned something over the course of this 20 years in exile, and therefore they may take a somewhat different approach if they, if they return to power. I don't mean to imply that somehow they will be you know, enthusiastic supporters of gender equality, <laughs> but I don't think we need necessarily to take the worst-case assumption, but the worst case could occur. And that, too, then will be a stain, really, on the United States. We promised to deliver certain things. We failed to deliver those things. And I, all I would say is that, well, how much longer should we stay? And, and to anyone who says, well, we have an obligation to those women and those girls, and I think that's an argument you can make. Well, are you willing to send your 19-year-old son uh, to persist in this war uh, that we have uh, waged for so long, so unsuccessfully, send your kid with an expectation that somehow if we hang in there another five years that we're going to get a different result. My judgment would be that we're not going to get a different result, that we can stay there until the cows come home, and we are not going to be able to impose our will on Afghanistan. We, we tried that. We have failed. We probably shouldn't have tried it in the first place. It was arrogant on our part to think that uh, we had the capacity uh, to remake uh, Afghanistan and somehow to impart uh, our value system. Well, we tried, we failed, and it seems to me that we, we have to confront that failure. Uh, one more thing. After the fall of Saigon, uh, more than a million South Vietnamese fled communist rule, especially those who had worked for the Americans, who would then be targeted. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 1.3 million Vietnamese were eventually admitted to the United States and settled as refugees after the American yeah. war formally concluded. Uh, let's just look at one scenario. The Kabul government falls at some point, two or four or six years from now. Do you think the United States will welcome 1.3 million Afghan refugees? You're, you're pulling my leg, right? <laughs> No, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question. Obviously, the Trump administration could care less about Afghan refugees, but I'm not sure that, that a, a successor to Trump, given the, the mood of our country, which is not particularly sympathetic to people who aren't like us, I would be surprised if there was, I, I, would, I, would, ur, I would hope that there would be, but I would be surprised if, in fact, we welcomed a flood of Afghan refugees to our country, if indeed things go south and the Taliban end up uh, prevailing there. One, one last thing. I have a question about the Quincy Institute, the new think tank that you had. It's funded by an extremely unlikely pair of billionaires, George Soros and Charles Koch. In everything else, they are fundamentally opposed, but they yeah. both support your work. How did you do this? Well, I, you know, it's not that I did it personally, but let, let me say a couple of things. First of all, it is true that Koch, a right-winger, Soros, a progressive, both support uh, the, the Quincy Institute. So do other people. So it's not, a, it's not as if that those are the only two funders of our, of our organization. But you put your finger on it. They disagree with one another on a, on a host of issues, but they both believe that our militarized approach to foreign policy has had terribly negative consequences for, the, for our country. So they support a more restrained approach to foreign policy, less use of the military, more emphasis on 
engagement through diplomacy, not isolationism. That's not what the Quincy Institute stands for, but engagement that will promote peace as our, as our goal. That's a, that's a goal that almost nobody ever talks about anymore. Uh, we think that it's, it's the proper goal of policy, and so we're hoping to bring about greater recognition in, in, in political circles uh, that, uh, that, 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 that militarization hasn't worked, and we need to find an alternative. Andrew Basevich, he's president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. His article, Trump's Afghanistan Peace Will Be Vietnam All Over Again, is from Tom Dispatch. It appears at the L.A. Times and The Nation. Thank you, Mr. Basevich. Thank you. Thousands of women left their homes in the West to travel to Syria to join ISIS, the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, especially after it declared a caliphate in 2013. Many of them were educated and successful. Many others came from North Africa and the Mideast countries and from Russia and Central Asia. We read about ISIS and its cult of violence, its treatment of women, enforcing not just separation but extreme subordination and sometimes enslavement and rape. So why did these women go? Azadeh Moaveni wanted to find out. And in 2015, she published a front-page article in the New York Times on ISIS women defectors. That article was a Pulitzer Prize finalist. She's been covering the Mideast for two decades, reporting mostly for Time magazine and mostly based in Tehran. She wrote two wonderful books about Iran, Lipstick Jihad and Honeymoon in Tehran. We talked about them here. Now her writing appears in The Guardian, The London Review of Books, and The New York Times, and she has a new book out. It's called Guest House for Young Widows Among the Women of Isis. We reached her today in London, Azadat Moaveni, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Well, before we talk about why these women went, we need to ask first about your project. How did you do this? Where did you find these women? How did you get them to talk to you? I started in London because that's what drew me to the whole project in the first place. I was very much drawn to the story of those three schoolgirls from East London, known as the Bethnal Green Girls. So I... I was sort of inspired and compelled to work on it because I felt that their their disappearances were covered in such a alarming uh, way by the media here. They were very they were excommunicated. They were they were called you know ISIS whores and brides of the caliphate. So I went looking for them initially. Uh, so I traveled to southern Turkey trying to chase their trail, and it was there that I met some Syrian women who had defected from Raqqa and, and kind of blended into the Syrian diaspora there. I then kind of expanded out. Um, I traveled to Tunisia because Tunisia sent, um, you know, a, a probably the biggest number of women to ISIS. It, it was tough, though. I mean, basically, I was trying to speak to women who were eluding uh, security surveillance, were, were very distrustful, who I had lots of reasons to not want to speak to anyone at all. I mean, I think distrust of the media was also so much part of the story of why young people, especially in Europe, um, didn't really believe all of the gory and horrific things that ISIS was doing. So that was another thing to have to overcome, too. Um, I think 
I spoke with a lot of families. I think being of a, of a Muslim background, a second generation background who can relate a little bit with, you know, the disapproval of the mothers, the frustration of the teenagers, all of that helped. And who were the women who left their homes, especially in the West, to join ISIS? Were they all confused teenagers or, as the media portrayed them, were any of them eager accomplices of violent jihad? Well, in in the early period, say 2013, 2014, a lot of young people went for reasons that were fairly, um, you know, we could identify with them or understand understand them as, as sympathetic. They believed that they were going to protect fellow Muslims who were being harmed and brutalized by the by the Syrian regime, by the Assad government. Um, they wanted to go help. There were a great many who believed themselves to be um, going to join some sort of pious Muslim society. There were a lot of women from the Middle East, and I think we have to remember that ISIS unfolded in the aftermath of the collapse of the Arab Springs. I think each country had its own story. There were sort of frustrations and grievances within each society that drew women. But I think overall, I mean, if there is a theme, I think in the early period before ISIS, you know, kind of made its genocidal project, like the center of its messaging, in the first couple of years, there was a lot of perhaps very naive desire to find some sort of empowerment, political representation, a pathway to things and an outlet for desires and frustrations that we would kind of consider, you know, understandable and legitimate. You said you started out following the trail of those three British girls from London. They were called the Bethnal Green Girls. They were 15 years old. They came from a well-regarded London high school. What did you learn about them? To me, they reflected the vulnerability of second-generation young Muslims who feel very excluded in the West. I think those girls, you know, reading their texts, their Twitter posts, all of their social messaging... I mean, all of the things that they were talking about, they were kind of developing a very nascent political consciousness. Like in so many Muslim households, they were kind of talking about how, why are Muslims so targeted by the war on terror and Guantanamo? There are these young people, no due process. They talked about racism. I think they felt very excluded and were very young. And all of that kind of nascent consciousness was, was very much manipulated by this group that it was you know, composed of Iraqi Ba'athists with a territorial jihadist project that had nothing to do with these identity uh, woes of you know, second-generation Muslim youth in Europe. So part of what I tried to do with their story was to show how you know, a very local London story of growing up as a second-generation Muslim in an era of still pretty stark exclusion could be knit together with a very faraway story that had everything to do with you know, two other countries, very shattered contemporary histories, Syria and Iraq. And we have to talk about Noor, the girl from Tunisia who opens your book. Tell us about why she left home to go to Syria. Noor grew up in Tunisia before the 2011 uprising or revolution, uh, which actually kicked off the whole of the Arab Spring and started in Tunisia. So So Noor grew up in this old, very authoritarian order in which women who were visibly pious, who covered their hair with headscarves, were essentially excluded from public life. They couldn't attend university. They couldn't hold government jobs. So Noor, as a 13-year-old, showed up at high school one day deciding that she wanted to cover her hair. She felt that it was her religious obligation. She showed up at school. One of her teachers yelled at her. Another one slapped her. There was a terrible altercation. She was thrown out of school, suspended for 10 days. And she ended up becoming a high school dropout because she felt as though kind of her personal piety was incompatible with public life in Tunisia. 
Um, and then after the revolution, and this is a very you know, Tunisian story, to, to give an overview of it that's understandable, there was a sort of heyday where all of this kind of religious, civic activity, rad- a sort of sphere of radical activism, a kind of uh, a spectrum of, of moderate political Islam or militant political Islam, which had been completely shut down for decades in Tunisia because it was so, so authoritarian, kind of erupted. And within this heyday, you know, there were moments of violence because I think, you know, there were elements of all of that that were connected to the old transnational jihadist groups that we think of, you know, as, as Al-Qaeda. Um, so essentially the Tunisian government shut down the whole thing. You know, they shut down all of this political Islamist activity, whether it was kind of peaceful and it was about raising funds for hospitals and blood drives all the way over to the more militant end. And so for Noor, it was like going back to the past. It was as though the revolution had never happened. She felt like there was no space for her anymore. And I think it was, again, in that kind of milieu where it feels as though there are no more peaceful pathways left to demands and frustrations and to aspirations that seem legitimate that more militant groups can can prey and exploit very easily. And that's how Noor got caught up. And there were some American women who went to Syria and joined uh, ISIS. What can you tell us about them? It's interesting in that, you know, the story of women in ISIS, which is, which is really a story of, you know, women for the first time becoming a force in jihadist movements. We never had that before. You know, ISIS reached out to women, it recruited women, it offered women a role in a quite kind of perversely progressive way. We had never seen that before. Um, And it drew women from 54 countries. Strikingly, the Americans amongst them within this story have a very, very minor and modest role. Simply not that many went from America. And the ones who did go were not, they were not the ideologues and the recruiters who inspired others. Um, They were pretty minor characters. And, you know, as as a transplanted American in Europe, I, I try to understand this. And I think ultimately, you know, there are huge differences in America's Muslim diaspora than, than the European diaspora to do with class background and level of education and then the kind of places of origin that they came from. But I think a really important distinction is that, and all of this seems to be changing now, of course, but, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, the inclusiveness of American culture to immigrants was was has historically been very different from Europe. I think the American ideal of inclusion, that anyone can come and genuinely be an American, to a certain extent immunized America and the United you know, the United States from the sort of draw. It it did not offer such fertile ground for exploitation the way uh, Europe did for women. When you talk with many of these women, they were held in detention by the Kurdish security forces or by the Turkish security forces. So they were motivated to say things that would get them out of detention and accepted back in their home countries. How did you decide what to believe in their statements of remorse? That's a good question. Partly, I I spent a lot of time with a lot of women, and so I was quite accustomed to meeting women who were very bold and not remorseful at all and were willing to suffer the consequences of that. At the same time, there were those who you could sort of tell if you spent time. I mean, if, if, you know, I've been kind of, I've inhabited this world for so long, you could sort of see that that they really didn't have that much empathy for the people that had suffered the, the most greatly in the hands of ISIS. There was a lack of empathy in certain parts of their stories. Um, maybe it was too glib. Maybe they um, kind of hurried over things. Certainly, 
there's the reality though that, that we're seeing now, which is that many of these women who are being held in these camps in the northeast of Syria um, are all squirreled in together. And the conditions in which they're being held are so uh, they're so reprehensible and, and so dangerous and so unhealthy that I think there's a level of rage in there that's, that's hard to even diagnose. Is this rage against the West of ideological? Is this rage against, you know, being kept without any due process, any fair trial, being kept, you know, in detention alongside really still hardcore violent ISIS members? There was a killing this week in one of these camps because the women who are who are mixed in there are still many of them still violent. So all to say that that sh- that you know surely there were there were many who I think cast their their regret in in terms that we would struggle to to believe. Um, but I think we have to remember also that ISIS brutalized a great many of its own members. You know, women who tried to escape were locked up. They had their children taken away. Their degree of, of suffering that women who, you know, we would view as perpetrators have also experienced. And I think it's important to, to bear that in mind that this is kind of it's a phenomenon that's somewhat legally from, from all the perspectives that we're used to assessing uh, accountability. It, it's a different it's a different creature. The Islamic State collapsed in March 2019. What's happening to these women now? Are any of them getting to go back to their countries of origin? The response has been very uneven. There are a handful of countries, particularly uh, Russia, Kazakhstan, Indonesia. These have been really at the forefront of bringing women home. But but the great the great majority of countries in the West are are very reluctant and, and at this point outright refuse to bring women back. Uh, countries of North Africa that also have sizable populations there are also reluctant. Um, it, it, it's a political issue, I think, for, for the West, largely because in Europe, you know, populist right-wing governments and populist right-wing movements are on the rise and no government wants to risk you know, repatriating these women for whom there is no public sympathy. But at the same time, leaving them there is also a security risk. There are daily breakouts. Um, It's really an enormous and thorny policy challenge right now for a number of Western governments because there seems to be no good options. And keeping them there is arguably illegal, it's inhumane, and it's dangerous too. So I think that's going to be something we watch unfold, um, you know, in the months ahead. And what about the United States? I understand there are some American women who have quietly uh, returned. Yes, it, it's striking to see this administration that's been so vociferous about, you know, having a Muslim ban and has cultivated the sphere of, of, of migrants and Muslims generally. The United States has been very in favor of repatriation. It's logistically assisted countries that don't have the means to be able to do it. It's tried to bring most of its own female citizens back to sort of lead by example. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see that in, in this one instance, kind of in contrast to what much of what this administration stands for on this point, perhaps uh, largely because of security, because they think that's safer, they are kind of leading the way in this. Azadeh Moaveni, her amazing new book is Guest House for Young Widows Among the Women of ISIS. Asada, thank you for this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, 
located in the heart of Hollywood with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.